I'm Evan. And I'm Hannah. We're working together to make a sequel to our first role-playing game, Questlandia, and we're documenting that process in real time. Today, we're talking about how to make a campaign game without a game master. So Questlandia 2 is going to be a campaign game, so a game that spans multiple sessions. How are GM duties distributed in the game already? How can those responsibilities be pushed further? And how do we make this a game that people want to play who maybe really don't want to GM? So Evan. Yo. Hi. <laughs> we just ran our first Questlandia playtest since March. Yikes. <laughs> that's, Maybe that's quite we... a stretch. <laughs> oh, oh shit. <laughs> I was I was actually really surprised because in my mind, like I knew that Questlandia has had to get like a little bit pushed on the back burner, but like we've still been doing the podcast. We've still been doing work on it. So I was really surprised to open up the playtest document and see that our last notes were from PAX at the end of March. Wow. Uh, and here we are in July, and so it is. Nope, whoops, here we are in August. <laughs> uh, but we ran the playtest in July. So here we are, you know, sometimes life has twists and turns. Um, so it had been a while since I'd even opened up our playtest materials. And looking at them, one thing that I was sort of surprised by was how much work we'd done <laughs> so far. I don't know. Have you ever had the experience of like getting enough distance between you and a project that like you forget that you've actually done things on it? All the time. Every time I open any project document ever. Did you remember that you had written like, I don't know, a hundred custom scene types? Some in some. <laughs> <laughs> you, I, I just you had wrote this, this dim memory of sitting in the back of our PAX booth on a laptop typing furiously for a play test that was going to happen in a couple hours. You did so much work, and I feel like we didn't actually really get to see the fruits of that labor until this past weekend. Well, the a PAX play test. play test, yeah, after I did all that, uh, <laughs> we didn't get that far in the game. We created the world as usual and ran out of time before the scenes began. So this playtest was the first time that we had really gotten a chance to put this idea of these like custom junk poet scenes into play. And that brought up a lot of questions for us about this game again as a GMless game and how the junk poets can be these facilitation tools in the game. So Evan do you want to like remind what the junk poets are and what role they play in the game? So the junk poets are the survivors of a failed society who are looking to rebuild. They're a stand-in for the players. They're the ones who have found the tools to explore different worlds uh, and to and within those worlds, they're going to try to learn things that can 
be brought back to their own civilization so they can rebuild. Maybe. That's the idea of them. <laughs> it's a current idea. Um, and their role within those worlds is somewhere in between an observer and a storyteller where they're witnessing the world, but also guiding what parts of the world we pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And as we've set them up, the junk poets are, well, we've had different degrees of specificity with them down to like them being named like this is Bob, the junk poet <laughs> to being more archetypal where it's like, this is the gardener junk poet. Bob, the That's builder like the function junk poet within the pseudo society that they have. It's a decent joke that just, you just, you just bulldozed over. it. <laughs> well, what say it, say it again. Oh, Bob, the builder junk poet. Bob the bit. Oh, All that right. was good. It's okay. I'm sorry I killed it's it. It's fine. I don't know. You know, <laughs> I'm trying to do a little bit better on the podcast at like not laughing at my own jokes, but I think that part of that should be not demanding that you laugh. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be a happy medium. <laughs> so, Something where it's like you get to make the joke. And then just and, um, the laughter happens. It just happens. I know you would think that after all this time, I could take uh, like take the cue <laughs> that like you didn't laugh or you didn't acknowledge my Bob the Builder joke. So like it's not really a joke. <laughs> There's no joke there. <laughs> like we could cut it out. We could move yeah. on and it just like something else. Let it's it sort be. Of a, it's like a we moral. Could, I could take this tool back to my own society. <laughs> It's just an analogy. And not repeat these same mistakes again. What junk poet archetype is that? The jester poet. Yeah, the, shlam the shlamazel. <laughs> 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 anyway, so junk poets have evolved over time and their role has evolved over time. And so the junk poets are characters and they are also... GMing tools. So, Evan, do you want to just like talk a little bit about what a GM does in a game? Because I feel like actually there are different uh, like schools of thought about what a GM does. In fact, I don't think I know there are. There are. I uh, what? I what don't is know the schools ours? that well. Well, okay. So, I mean, let me just like think about. When I think about this, I think there are some people who it even just comes down to the question of whether the GM is a player or not. And your answer to that question, I think kind of shapes like what it is like to be in a role playing game with you as a player. <laughs> <laughs> so we have these junk poets. They are both characters in the game and they are GMing tools. And I think that there are actually a lot of different thoughts that people have about what the role of a GM is in a game. Uh, some people think of the GM as another player. Some people think of the GM as sort of outside of the game. 
some people imagine GMing as like a really shared responsibility for other people. Uh, it's much more helpful to like, I don't know, create like a little bit of a hierarchy of power. <laughs> so we're talking about giving the junk poets GMing roles, rent them to do game master stuff. But Hannah, what would you say a game master even does in a game? I think that a game master keeps everybody feeling like scared. <laughs> well, keeps everybody <laughs> from feeling scared or keeps them feeling scared if it's a scary game. And that's like, I, I don't know. I, I feel like when I'm in a game that I feel like is being GM'd well, I feel like I don't have to worry. I feel like if I can't think of what to say, the GM is going to help me and help to fill in the blanks, but they're also going to give me the opportunity to do it myself first. Um, I feel like the GM keeps the story going and, you know, fills in the awkward pauses when they've gone on too long and gives suggestions and uh, makes sure everybody understands the rules so none of the other people at the table have to feel panicked about it. It's a lot of stuff. It is. And I think that's just the beginning of what they do, actually. It is. <laughs> it's yeah. a really demanding role. Yeah. And often they're like also the same person who hosts and makes the snacks, which isn't yeah. fair. The person who does the scheduling, the person who even decides who's sort of invited to the game. Yeah. What system they're playing. A lot of, a lot of things go into being... Being a GM, big old GM, daddy GM. And that's why I think that some people like can get into a little bit of a power trip in that role. You know, they're like, I mean, I'm the daddy. I don't like that. It does stand for God moding, right? So, like, (laughs) I don't like it. Yeah. (laughs) So, those are some of my thoughts about the GM roles. I mean, I like that you mentioned the daddy feel. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned daddy. Let's go into detail about that. No, Uh, (laughs) let's not. (laughs) Continue. Let's talk about the what what the other thing you mentioned, which is that cozy feeling of not worrying when there's a good GM at the table because you trust them to handle the story, to be fair and distributing the spotlight and giving voice to everybody at the table. And, you know, you can just sort of kick back and be your own character, do what you want to do. Trust that, you know, if you throw wide, they'll run out and catch it and bring it back in. Like daddy. (laughs) Just like I wish dad did. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Can we put in like a little violin music right here? <laughs> Cats in the cradle. Put on a sepia filter. <laughs> little boy blue and the man in the moon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what are we talking so, about again? <laughs> we're talking about how the junk poets are like dad. Oh, yeah. So all of those things still have to happen in the game, even if we don't have an explicit game master. Mm-hmm. We still need to make sure that people are getting their fair share of spotlight on their characters. We want people to still feel cozy and supported and like 
they can say what they want to say and it's going to work and we're going to bring it into the story. Some of that we can distribute to everybody sort of on a player level even, right? Where it's like, hey, people playing this game, look out for each other. But I think we want to take a lot of those responsibilities and tuck them in to the junk poet concept. So since the beginning with the junk poets, that's been a part of the idea of them, that they do some of these GMing roles. I think what's new in this version that we playtested was the idea of having a certain junk poet sort of take point where they are like the active uh, GM junk poet for that moment. Yeah. What we did is we created special scene types that were specific to the archetypes of certain junk poets. So on your sheet, if you're the gardener junk poet, you might have one, a scene about exploring some aspect of nature. Mm -hmm. And we've given you the possibility of calling for this scene, setting it up, and for the duration of this scene, where we're dealing with this part of nature, you're kind of the boss, your dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so in Questlandia 1, the way that it worked was that scenes were framed around a specific character. Like everybody would have the opportunity to have their spotlight scene. And you would just kind of ask, where are you? What are you doing? Who are you with? And what's your goal? What's Basically, your goal for this everybody scene? everybody else. Sorry. No, that's. And everybody else would be asking that. Yes. You know. The role, the simultaneous just say, at like, the same anybody time, else at the table. <laughs> their voices raise in a cacophony of noise. <laughs> yeah, was, the goal was to make it as intimidating as possible. What are you doing? Where are you? <laughs> Who are you with? What are you going to do? What's your goal? Remind <laughs> us of your goal. Obstacles? I think this game had obstacles. What are your hindrances? I don't remember. That game had so many rules. Uh, so you would ask these questions and sort of frame the scene around these questions. And in Questlandia 2, we're experimenting with this idea of, you know, when you're ready to take a scene, everybody kind of stepping back and looking at their sheet and saying like, oh, hey, based on what happened last, I actually think this is a great moment for an investigation scene or a haven of nature scene or an underworld scheming scene. And each of those, rather than having these, like they still sort of have the generic who are you with? What do you see? Describe things with your senses. But then they also have specific prompts that set up that scene and close that scene. Yeah. And most importantly, there's one person at the table who's in charge of asking those questions for the scene and guiding us all through it. Yes. So everybody else at the table gets to experience that cozy I'm not the game master feeling somebody else is going to handle that. Yeah. But from scene to scene, that game master will rotate. Yeah. Rotates the wrong word. It's, uh, you know, the it's... The game master will be whoever's feeling like it. Whoever looks at their scene and thinks, I want to run that. Mm-hmm. So having played in this, like, I didn't even think that we were going to get a chance to play these scenes out mostly because I get kind of self-conscious 
playtesting a game where I'm like, oh God, I'm keeping everybody here way too long in this unfinished game. Like, I know that's sort of like what they've come on for. And like, they've, you know, (laughs) this is the waiver that they've signed, but I start to get kind of anxious and it was everybody else at the table who really pushed towards testing these scenes. And I mean, there's still a ton to do, but like they're, I was surprised to see that they, it felt like at the core of them, they worked. We had a, did we have an underworld scheming scene? I think we did. We did. Yeah. And what was cool about that was, so we had a bunch of people who were going to be plotting to, we all lived up in these trees and we were plotting to go down to the ground because in our society, nobody was allowed to go to the ground, but there was a lot of overpopulation in the trees and it was time to think about expanding our society beyond, but like what's on the ground? I don't know. It's forbidden. So as I was looking at my character sheet, I had a scene type that was like, I don't, it was something like a grand adventure or a shared journey, I think. And I was like, oh, it'd be really cool to have two people planning for this shared journey. And then Epi was like, I think we're going to do an underworld scheming scene where we're going to plan for this journey. And what I really liked about (laughs) it was it was two totally different, uh, like two different containers for the same type of scene because suddenly this meeting was totally like secretive and wasn't something that outside eyes were supposed to see. And that was really cool. There are, I feel like after that test, there's still a a fair amount of refinement to do on the process of setting up a scene and uh, sort of giving it a narrative arc, making complications enter. I think there could also be some more clarity about what other people at the table do when they don't explicitly have a character to play within a scene. Mm-hmm. You know, their character is left out, but they're not the junk poet in charge. So what's their role? Yeah. Not totally clear at the moment, but the basic feeling of you look down at your sheet and you see these special kinds of scenes that only you can call for that have a unifying archetypal sort of thread. I thought that felt great. It seems like it worked. It was inspiring. I could look down at the list of scenes and really kind of justify any of them. Which I think is sort of what you want. Uh, Things that are specific enough and vague enough that you feel like they could work in any in almost any of those moments. And of course, having them tied to the junk poets means we can play around with having those scene types change over time. We could have those scenes be influenced by the worlds you've explored. So maybe there's new kinds of scenes you can call for, or maybe your existing scenes have modifications or special outcomes that they could cause. That all seems fun. Yeah. And, you know, maybe when we post this episode on the one shot site, we'll like throw up a picture of what the junk poet sheets look like right now. Um, Because I think it would be cool to be able to see an example. But yeah, they do have this sort of formula for creating a scene that I think if you have played in the world or have just played with the junk poets for enough time, 
I think that there are groups who would feel really empowered and excited to create their own scene types, which is awesome. (laughs) So, And also gets back to something we were playtesting in earlier versions, which is having scene types that are unique to the world that you're in. Yeah, it really does feel like the 2.0 of that idea. So we've talked about calling for scenes and having special questions for those scenes. We also did some work to just kind of give junk poets like a universal, you're the game master, here's the kind of stuff you can do. Do you want to talk about what rules we put in for that and how those worked? Yeah, so there were, so the junk poet sheets have these, you know, this on the left side, there's like these scenes. So you can, if you're the investigator archetype, you can always call for an investigation scene, an interrogation scene, a secret meeting. And those three unique scene types all have different ways of setting up and closing the scene. But on the right side of the junk poet sheets, there's general guidance for junk poets as GMs. And it says things like, you can always ask questions like, what's your plan? What do you want to do next? What's your goal again? What do you see, hear, feel, and smell? And then those are also slightly tailored to the individual junk poet. So for example, at the end of the gardener junk poets sheet, it also says, what other plants surround you? How does nature ground you here? And then it also gives gives suggestions for things you can do in the scene. Like you can always introduce a new location, a new NPC, an impact of a trouble, a setting detail like food, clothing, a place, a norm, a way of life. And then those are also tailored for your individual junk poets with little suggestions like for the gardener, uh, you can always introduce a connection with nature or something beautiful. So general guidance for GMing with a little bit of specific flavor at the end. That part feels very unfinished to me. You know, it just feels like a sort of dump of the surface appearance of stuff that a GM does. It's like, oh yeah, GMs do ask those questions and introduce that stuff. Yeah. But there is a whole art to when to do that and what specifically to bring up. Because there's moments where it's great to be like, and what do you smell? (laughs) And there's moments where it's just not appropriate. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's even evidenced by the way that I ended up laying these sheets out. Because all of the stuff on the left was this really like, I don't know, like the flow really makes a lot of sense when you look at how to run these individual scenes. And then on the right, there's just sort of this information dump that's not even connected to this part where you run scenes. It's like, oh, don't forget, as a GM, here's some other things you can do too. So I I think that the fact that I didn't even know exactly where to put those prompts is indicative of uh, the fact that they still have a lot of work. GMing is a, it's a huge thing. It's like a whole art form. There are GMs for hire. You can hire people who do this for a living, or at least some kind of living. Uh, because it really is, in a, it's a whole skill set. It's a huge amount. You know, there's also the expectation that you're uh, role-playing the NPCs of the scene. Like there's so much that you're doing. So trying to boil that down to something that's accessible to people who have maybe never been a game master 
but now we're going to take on that role for a scene is ambitious and it's tricky. Yeah. This is one where, you know, if you, if anybody there at home, if anybody has good examples of games that don't take for granted the kind of knowledge you need to be an effective GM and give good, simple guidance, that's exactly the kind of thing that we need to figure out to make these junk poet roles work. And if you think you know the answer, like if you're like, oh yeah, that game that just came to my head, think again. Because I think your answer is wrong. (laughs) I'm just going to (laughs) say it, that so often when people are like, this game gives great GMing tools. I think it's wrong. <laughs> yeah, workshop that a little. But I mean, Don't. I think here's the deal. I <laughs> So it's like having come to role-playing games later in life and having just seen so much of the guidance taken for granted. I just... I don't know if I know of an example and it's I'm I don't say that to like cast aspersions on a specific game because genuinely this shit is really hard and I don't know how anybody does it. But uh yeah, Questlandia isn't it? <laughs> I think that we thought well, Questlandia like certain, was. There's a certain attitude I feel like that's uh that plays into the whole power trip of it. Where it's like you're the GM. You're no baby. You know? <laughs> yeah. You've got to. You're the daddy. You, yeah. Uh, right now in our scene types on these junk poets, they have questions that you need to ask to, to set up the scene. They have um, some things that you're going to tell everybody at the table. Almost every one of them asks you to describe the scene engaging two different senses like and it it depends on the scene like if it's a journey describe the path using two different senses i included that and i was worrying like is this too much of a am i babying to be so specific be like remember two different it's it sounds like (laughs) uh you know like a middle school writing class I Don't forget to use those senses. It's so important, but though. I think it's really helpful. At the table, at the table, it was striking how effective it was. Where somebody would set up the scene with the basics, where it's like, okay, we're going to be having a secret meeting. These characters will be there. It's going to be in this lodge, uh, and you're talking about getting down to the forest. Yeah. Like, okay, we're kind of we feel ready to start in a way. And then it would be like, oh, wait, I have to explain the lodge in two different senses. Okay. Uh, You hear the murmurs of all the people in this lodge. They're all talking in muffled tones. And it's sort of serious with the occasional bit of laughter that interrupts it. It's the kind of place where, you know, if somebody laughs too loud, everybody turns around and looks at them. And it has this musty, smoky smell uh, of like a very ancient kind of place those details just like made a world of difference for sucking you into the world yeah and i think it also gets at this thing that i just want to try i mean we talked about uh or i i think this question in our notes is something like how can we push this part of the game even further 
And I think that like distilling these individual pieces down so that uh, I don't even know how to explain this. It's just like as a GM, when I look down and I see that I have really good notes that like kind of bullet out every part of what I'm supposed to do, I feel guided and comforted. And I want to be able to give that to the people playing this game with just like, this is how a scene goes. And we're here to help you every step of the way. And I think that people's instinct is going to be like, oh, but that's going to be like, you're going to have to be looking at that every, (sighs) I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I want to do that, but in a way that flows. (laughs) So I, I just think when we were playing that game, the times that I thought it was most effective were when the GMs also got to sort of sit back and ask one question at a time and then have the other people at the table answer instead of feeling this pressure to just like talk and talk and talk. Kind of like I'm doing right now, for example, at the pressure. It's like mounting. I feel anxious. Mm-hmm. You know. Please go on. It's like there's this palpitation in my heart. <laughs> the things that I'm saying are sort of making less sense. Like there's more words, less meaning as I continue. I mean, that's the other side of this, right? We talked about giving this this supported, cozy feeling to everybody else at the table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we don't want to, you know, it, it's not worth it if one person at the table is having a panic attack. No. Uh So part of the tools that we want to give a GM is the ability to distribute that responsibility back to the group. Yeah. Where it's like really easy, where it's like, oh, it's time to describe the path of two different senses, and I'm just not coming up with it. And it should be a non-issue to just be like, does somebody else want to take this part on? Mm Mm-hmm. Because already there's a sort of dichotomy in the community of people who play. I don't like saying community. There's a there's already a sense with people who play role playing games of are they going to be game masters or players? Like which is the one that they feel better with? Mm-hmm. What do they like to do? Uh if this is a game that's asking everybody to play both roles, it needs to have a lot of support for people who are outside of their normal role. Mm -hmm. And if there's people who have never played a role-playing game before, they're going to the deep end. They're going to be on both sides of it. Yeah. So let's talk about one part of this that I think is uh, quite incomplete, which is the distinction between your junk poet personality and your in-world character and how those two elements of the game intersect with each other. Yeah, so this came up during the game because somebody had picked a certain type of junk poet and then I think everybody was kind of, you know, everybody was for the most part basing their characters around who their junk poet was. So if you'd picked the adventurer, 
junk poet, you were making an in-world character that liked adventuring. Uh, If you picked the mischief maker, your in-world character was prone to mischief. And then a question came up at some point like, oh, should I have picked a junk poet in contrast to my character? Like, should my junk poet be pushing my character's comfort zone? Should I have this character that's actually really by the book and nervous to do things that are outside of the norms, but my junk poet's the mischief maker. It's a great question. I think I, I personally still have a lot of questions about who the junk poets are and like some discomfort around their, the framing of them already. So I don't, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, for me, I want there to be a really hard split between the in-world characters and the junk poets. Yeah. I feel like I want those roles to be very different. And even to the extent where I'm personally very interested in removing the part of the game where everybody makes a character that is going to be their character for the game and letting that just be the junk poet level. Everybody's going to have a junk poet. That's who they're going to have as a consistent part of the game the characters of the world will make as we need. Mm. And Mm -hmm. sometimes maybe one junk poet will sort of own that character. Other times maybe that character is sort of free floating and we can jump in and have that character do things jointly. Mm -hmm. But the idea that kind of like we're, I guess I want to preserve the feeling that we are visiting a world, not just creating it in our image. Yeah, this gets into like some really fundamental questions that I have about the junk poets that I just like, I don't think I'm ready to answer them yet. I still feel really uncomfortable about the junk poets as like these weird interlopers going into places and like, I, I don't know. It hasn't been sitting right with me. And I think however we answer it is going to change a lot of the game. Mm -hmm. So it feels like a bigger question than I am ready to answer right now. Almost ready to even think about right now, just because it, it feels like it requires like a, a thinking at another level for me about like this role of the junk poets as outsiders. And that gets into the sort of tone that we're going to write all of the junk poet language in and kind of the rules of the game in yeah. where we will be deciding, you know, what is their role in this? What's the attitude of visiting these worlds? Yeah. You know, it's What's the interesting. attitude toward the people of it? Yeah. It, which is interesting because we've described the junk poets as these like scrappy, you know, sort of punky inhabitants of this collapsed society. And yet, if you were to read our current rules of the game, it totally does not match that tone. I don't know how we fell into this like really sort of mystical, majestic tone, but it's like, together a shared dream. We sail into the mists. Night falls. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know, somewhere we've gone astray. And, you know, there's a lot of work to do. Uh, or maybe not. I, maybe the junk poets are the, gods. It doesn't feel right for them to be. 
Yeah. That might be the focus of the next batch of work we do on the game is getting clear headed about how the junk poets think of themselves, how they think of the world, and then how that is reflected in the language of the junk poet character sheets and the rules of the game. I think somewhere a few episodes ago, we had an episode called We Still Don't Know Who the Junk Poets Are. So maybe this next one can be like, we know who the junk poets are. (laughs) Yay. We already have our title. We did it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. Do you have any closing thoughts, Evan, about the, I feel like, I feel like in my own self-consciousness about some of the unfinished parts of the game, I sort of shifted this tone to negative. But what are some positive things about these scenes that you feel? Well, in the original Questlandia, in the old playtest of Questlandia, this moment when it's like we finished all of our character creation, our world creation, it's time to begin the first scene in this world. That's been an intimidating moment. You know, how that looked before is somebody saying, okay, my character will take the first scene. Mm -hmm. It's kind of intense. Yeah. The feeling felt completely different in this last play test. Yeah. Everybody looking down and having three different scene types that they could call for. And those scene types involve asking questions of the other people at the table. So it's not like you have to do everything. It felt like everybody was just sort of actively thinking like, oh, I could call for this kind of scene, or this could be a neat way to start the story. Like it just felt much more positive and energetic and approachable. Yeah, that's a great point. It also, it gave these cool dual options of saying like, oh, you know, I know that my character goal is to get higher into the canopy. So I could imagine taking the first scene and other people saying, oh yeah, totally. I Let's have a shared journey scene and I'll run it. Or somebody saying, I think it would be really cool to see a shared journey scene and a few other people jumping in and saying, oh yeah, okay, I can imagine being in that scene. So it like, it gives multiple opportunities for, I don't know, like, character and GM driven leadership. (laughs) What does that mean? I don't know. (laughs) Well, it's a way for everybody at the table to sort of get involved too. Yeah. That feels real promising. I agree. I'm excited for it. I think that's the one that I'll say too, because I don't want to come up with my own. (laughs) (laughs) So just rewind the podcast about two minutes. Play it one more time. Except imagine it in my voice this time. Good stuff. Good stuff. (laughs) Oh, how do we close? So again, if you want to see an example of these playtesty sheets, I will try to put one up on the one shot page, website page when we post the episode. Also, I'm releasing all of this stuff on my Patreon very slowly, but surely. So you can always consider backing my Patreon at HandBandit. Is that a shameless plug? Mm-hmm. It should be. I mean, yeah, hustle every day. So 
Uh, it sounds like our next episode is going to be about the junk poets and who they are. Wow, it's like living in a time warp. Let's crack that code. But I mean, these questions are hard to answer. So if you have thoughts about scene framing, questions about the junk poets, you can always tweet to us at designdocpod or email us at designdocpod at gmail.com. Or you can talk to us personally. I'm Hand Bandit on Twitter. I'm A Drawn Novel. And I personally look forward to hearing people's thoughts about role-playing games that do scene framing well and GM tools well now that I've revealed my absolute skepticism. <laughs> <laughs> so no first do. choices alive. No first choices. Uh, Did I say think alive? Of, think of no <laughs> first choices allowed. <laughs> uh, think about it. No, I'm I'm genuinely curious. So I look forward to hearing people's thoughts. The design doc intro outro theme. Was written by our friend, musician Pat King. Thanks, Pat. Heroes, it has been a while since we've asked you to review this podcast, and with that, we see a surprising correlation with people not reviewing the podcast. So it seems that asking <laughs> asking for reviews uh, generates reviews, and those reviews are super helpful. It helps other people find the podcast. It gets it a little bit higher in you know your pod feed rankings. So if you have some time to give it a review, it's great. It helps us. And if you take the extra time to write a personalized review, we read them all and they totally just make my day. So uh, there's our plug. If you have a minute, please review us. Design Doc podcast. <laughs> remember how I never <laughs> remember the name of our podcast? <laughs> you know, Design Doc, you're listening to it. You know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> figure it out so it means a lot thank you design doc is hosted on the one shot podcast network they also host other great podcasts like campaign campaign is a long form actual play podcast their current series campaign skyjacks takes place in an original setting inspired by folktales and classic adventure fiction Join Liz Anderson, John Patrick Cohn, Tyler Davis, Johnny O'Mara, and Game Master James D'Amato as they tell a tale of daring sky pirates. Also, it's basically an elaborate retelling of Weekend at Bernie's. Just search I, I for heard campaign. You I heard you do a little giggle at the I, end there. It's, a tiny, it's just I, the tiniest giggle. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Just search for Campaign or James D'Amato on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. What's your favorite podcast app, Hannah? Uh, you know, I'm trash, and I just I just do the iPhone podcast basic app. I'm sorry I asked. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see you back here no, same actually <laughs> it's just it's there you know i'm like one of those people it's like who i i think i tried to delete like some of the basic stuff that it sort of forced to have me like who needs apple health i don't want apple health like don't remind me 
but the podcast app. You've got to be I, kind of like a, a power user to be like, I thing. need something better for my yeah. podcast. So it's like recommend, I don't know, recommend me a podcast app, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder so, what we're missing. I know. Hey, I guess we'll find out. So in two weeks, we'll be back with an episode about the who the junk poets are because time is a circle. We'll see you then, heroes. <laughs>